The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Sarah King. She is the head of Greenpeace Canada's Oceans and Plastics Campaign. She is based on unceded coast Salish territory in Vancouver, British Columbia. Ms. King has worked for two decades on environmental justice issues at a local and global level, focused primarily on the oceans, pushing for corporate accountability and regulatory action at all levels of government. Her current work on plastics seeks to secure a green and just transition away from a fossil fuel and plastic-dependent economy towards widespread zero-waste reuse systems centered on community. Ms. King holds a BA in Geography and Environmental Studies from McGill University and a Master's in Environmental Applied Science and Management from Ryerson University. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I received an email announcing that Canada was going to be banning single-use plastics, including grocery bags and straws. And I thought, I need to talk to somebody close to this legislation, and like you, who has been doing work in this area for decades. First, though, why don't we start out with your telling me how you became interested in issues related to the environment, and specifically plastics? My interest in environmental issues dates back to when I was young. I grew up on the east coast of Canada and spent a lot of time by the ocean, you know, a lot of time in nature and just really was curious about how nature was connected and the role that it played. And it wasn't though until my undergraduate degree when I took a very random elective course called Geographical Perspectives on World Environmental Problems that I really fell in love with advocacy, you know, with the concept of trying to make the planet healthier and trying to stop problems, ideally before they happen, but really try to turn things around. And so, yeah, my journey really continued from there. And I've now been working in advocacy for almost 20 years. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about Greenpeace? My understanding is that Greenpeace uses peaceful protest to work towards a greener, more peaceful world and to confront the systems that threaten our environment. It's a beautiful mission statement. Tell me your experience with Greenpeace and how you found work there. Well, I actually started as an intern in the U.S. office, in our Washington, D.C. U.S. office. And I, coming in out of my master's program, I really knew that I wanted to work for an environmental organization. And I was very curious about Greenpeace, but Greenpeace Canada didn't have internship programs and it just turned out that the U.S. office did. So I got hired on for a stint there and on the oceans team 
And the rest is kind of history. I've been working on oceans issues with Greenpeace ever since. And Greenpeace really is a mission-driven organization. We're a campaigning organization. And we really try, I would say, to set the bar on where we think we need to go in terms of moving towards a more green and just future for everyone, for all beings on this planet. And, you know, we do that in a lot of ways. We expose environmental and social injustices. We work to hold corporations accountable. We push government to better regulate what is actually happening. And we have a long and complicated history, as you know, many organizations that have been around for a long time do, but we're always pushing to be better ourselves and to reflect the change that we want in the world. And so we're really trying to center justice and I guess have that come out in through all of our work. And plastic is an issue that really touches on so many of the planetary and social justice crises that are happening today. So it's an interesting one to be a part of. Right. I am interested in plastic from a public health and an environment perspective, and more recently from a climate perspective. And I don't know that we always connect the dots. Can you explain to us how plastic is not only choking our oceans, but it is also connected to climate crises. Definitely. So I think you're so right that we often don't think of plastic as oil or as a fossil fuel, but about 99% of the plastics that we encounter in our daily lives come from fossil fuels. And so from extraction through to production of the different types of plastics, and consumption and transport of those plastics. And then even once they're waste, so whether they're ending up in a landfill or they're being burned, and even when they're polluting, they're emitting harmful greenhouse gases at every step of that process. And so when we think about overall our need to reduce harmful greenhouse gas emissions in the context of our global climate crisis, Plastic really has come onto the radar in the last handful of years because the oil industry really sees plastic as a lifeline. And they too, you know, are trying to act as though plastic and harmful greenhouse gas emissions aren't connected. But the reality is that plastic production is expected to at least double by 2040. And the projected growth is expected to increase global greenhouse gas emissions by over 50% when we compare to 2019 levels by 2030. So that's soon, that's less than 10 years from now, they could be increased by over 50%. So they could be making a significant contribution to our climate crisis beyond what they're already doing at this point. Right. From a consumer education perspective, what I see coming out of corporations that use plastic, say soda companies, for example, there's an encouragement to recycle and there's a big promotion of that arrow. But my understanding is that recycling plastic is a very small percentage of what we do with our plastic waste. And most of it, as you say, it's going to either end up in our environment somehow, our oceans, or our landfills. Tell me what your understanding is about recycling and and is it really up to the end user 
to be responsible for all of the plastic waste? Yeah, you know, the industry has really put it back on us that it's up to us to make sure that we're putting things in the blue bin, that we understand the different recycling symbols, that we're disposing of things properly when it can't be recycled. But the reality is that I think many of us are doing our best to try to put things where they're supposed to go. But even when you are following all the instructions, that does not guarantee that those things that go in your blue bin or go in a recycling bin um, will actually be recycled at the end of the day. And so in Canada, less than 9% of plastic waste is recycled. And in the US, it's lower than that. It's more like 5 to 6%, which is very, very, very low percentage when you think of the billions and billions and billions of plastic items and types of packaging that are pumped into our markets every week. And the reality is that even at best, even with a really a college try to recycle using our existing capacity in Canada, for example, the highest capacity or the existing capacity is only around 17%. So we, even at best, we would be recycling 17%. And that still leaves a ton of plastic that is going to landfill that is being burned, or, you know, that's ending up in the environment. So We really need to think beyond recycling. Back when so much plastic wasn't being produced, it was easier to capture it, to recover it, and to try to keep it in a loop. But we're so far beyond that now. Production is at such a level that there's no way that we would ever be able to capture all the plastic at this point to recycle. Yeah. And you know what I find, What and maybe it's different in Canada, but in the United States, if I go into a supermarket, many of the products that I used to be able to purchase in glass, I can't get in glass anymore. Like there's only a plastic ketchup bottle, for example, or mustard or any of the other condiments, or even if I wanted to buy some sparkling water, I find many of those manufacturers are moving from glass to plastic and they'll say, well, you know, it's easier, it's lighter weight, So it's easier for us to handle and there would be less cost in moving it. So there are all of these factors that get floated around. And I think that the end of the day, the consumer actually has fewer choices in the marketplace. Definitely. You know, even despite people's best efforts to dodge plastic packaging and and other single use items, it is virtually impossible for the average person to avoid plastic packaging in their grocery shop, they're going to acquire other goods or services, it is virtually impossible. And the plastic industry has done a really good job at telling us a story about how we need plastic, how it will keep us safe, how it's healthy, how it's convenient. But the reality is that it's just not true. We don't need plastic. There are so many alternatives out there. You know, as you say, like there are were alternative materials used before, there were alternative product delivery methods used before. And we're in a place where we can innovate to create different models that tick so many more important boxes like health, like environmental protection, like social justice. And that's what we need to be doing now because we are ultimately in, you know, a plastic pollution, a climate and a biodiversity crisis that's all coming together at the same time that needs systemic change. We're past the point where we can kind of just do a piecemeal approach to tackling this issue. 
Right. Well, I was happy to see that Canada was planning to ban single-use plastics. And that ban, according to my press release, is going to cover items like plastic checkout bags at the grocery store, straws, plastic cutlery, and food service ware made from or containing plastics that are hard to recycle. Do you want to comment on this ban? How did it come to be? And are you happy with it? We were very hopeful in the beginning when our federal government started to talk about the need to address plastic pollution and our plastic waste problem. I would say they really started to talk about it back in 2017-ish, when also the UN was officially declaring plastic pollution a global crisis. So more global governments were saying, okay, we need to start to do something about this. And I would say our government came out of the gate with some pretty strong language around the need to eliminate single-use plastics and move towards more circular zero-waste alternatives. Unfortunately, I would say that over the course of the last few years, I think that intention really got watered down by industry pressure to a place where Sure, we are now moving to ban most forms of those six single-use items, but that really only accounts for less than 5%, probably more like 3 or less percent of our total plastic waste. And so when you think about the overall impact, both in terms of on waste generation and pollution creation, but also for the average person, whether or not they're going to feel this impact in their daily lives, it's pretty minimal. So we're definitely encouraged by the listing of plastic manufactured items under Canada's Environmental Protection Act. That's really positive. And the fact that the government has been willing to move forward with regulating certain plastics, but we're very concerned about that other 95% and what they plan to do about it. Because as it stands now, there's a lot of talk about recycling and improving how plastic is made. And there's not a lot of talk about overall plastic reduction and the need to shift towards truly zero waste, more circular systems that aren't reliant on fossil fuels. Yeah. Well, as an outsider, I see this as a good first step But to further the mission down the line, I think that, as you say, we need much more inclusive policies that cover more plastics and get to more of the reasons why there are so much of it in our environment. And one of the reasons that I see has to do with the cost. So anytime I, say, go into a restaurant and I want to have a to-go container, I'm often given a styrofoam container. And I I might say something like, oh, do you have any alternatives? Do you have a piece of foil? Do you have a paper box? And invariably, I'm told that they'd love to make the switch, but the styrofoam or the plastic container is just so much cheaper. How do we put the proper cost on these plastic containers? The government really needs to be investing in the transition to reuse and refill-centered systems. We see in our communities across the U.S., across Canada, and around the world, there is a zero-waste reuse 
refill movement that is growing and it's growing rapidly and it's innovating and it's showing us proof of concept for a lot of different ways to deliver products, to deliver services. But they really are always up against this very issue, which is that it is cheaper just to use plastic packaging. And so they're really, even though they're leading us towards this zero plastic waste goal that the Canadian government, for example, has set, they're not getting adequate support to do that. And so that's why one of our big asks to government is to invest in and to help accelerate this transition to sector-wide and community-wide infrastructure that can help small businesses access sanitation and delivery and, and all those types of services more easily and then help other companies transition to those alternative models. Yeah. Sarah, let me take one break because we are more than halfway through and I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Sarah King. She is the head of Greenpeace Canada's Oceans and Plastics Campaign, and she is based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Well, you did a press release back in June of 2022, and it was titled World Refill Day. Will government and big brands finally answer the movement's calls? I had never heard of World Refill Day before, and I know that there are some companies in the United States that will offer you an opportunity to bring a container in to the store and then allow you to refill it, which is great. How can we help that movement grow? I think definitely, you know, when you visit your local grocer or your local restaurant or favorite cafe, communicate that you want those types of alternatives, that you want them to offer reusable containers or cups or reusable packaging, that you support that transition and that you are a willing participant in it. That really does go a long way. You should never underestimate how much of an impact that has sharing with companies that this is a change that you want. And then the other thing I would say is, of course, supporting political candidates and encouraging your local or relevant member of government to champion these types of policies, to champion national or state level reuse targets and plastic reduction targets, because we need it on both sides. We need the momentum and the support for the transition to reuse, refill initiatives but we also need massive cuts in the production of plastic and more regulation, strict regulation around plastic production and use in order to help with the momentum towards those alternatives. So it's use your voice. And if you're able to kind of lead by example, bring your reusables when you're able to, and just show that that's what you support. Even if it's not always possible, do it when you can. Right. But so interesting to compare Canada with the U.S. in terms of, I don't believe I hear political candidates talking about plastic. And so that's why when I saw this news release about what Canada was doing, I was so impressed that your leadership, your federal leadership had been aware of the problem and was taking a stand, albeit small, and we need to go farther but still, I have not seen that 
in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely noticed just in speaking with colleagues in the US and following the news a bit that you see it more at the city level or at the state level, like in California, where they're trying to put bans on certain things in place in those areas. But I agree, there's not been um, a, s- a significant discussion around plastic reduction at the federal level. And that is obviously extremely problematic. Um, and also, I think, indicative of where the pressure is coming from, i.e. the fossil fuel industry and big plastic to not have that happen. And I think that listeners may have heard about the global plastic treaty that is that world leaders have agreed to start negotiating through the UN. And those negotiations start at the end of this year in late November. And I think that's a moment where world leaders will be coming together to get a little bit more serious about what really needs to happen. And I think for governments that have not yet been moving in the right direction or even really starting to think about reduction, that will be a moment where they'll need to face their peers on that. And hopefully we can have more progressive governments be pushing the bar to where it needs to go so that we can get strong global action around plastic reduction and incentivizing a shift and support for the transition that we need. Yeah, I was not aware that there was a global plastic treaty out of the United Nations. So I'll provide a link to that for our listeners so that we can all learn more about it and help promote that. I know that you have been in love with the ocean for your entire life, and I share that. There's something about being in a beautiful place in nature and then seeing plastic waste. And there are some beaches that I visited where the plastic waste is enormous and it's quite startling. And there are other places where you don't see as much. And I'm sure that depends on ocean currents. And I think that on the East Coast, for example, if there are cruise ships and they put their waste in the ocean, a lot of that can wash up on the beaches. That's what local people have told me anyway. Tell me about your experience in working in the ocean environment with regard to plastic waste. Yeah, so it's so true what you say where, you know, some areas it's like so prominent. The pollution is is very evident. And then other areas, it's just not. But that doesn't mean that it's there. And I think that's been one of the biggest learnings for me when I visit different places is that it really is deceptive sometimes how, quote, clean a beach looks. Because the reality is that microplastics, so, you know, when plastic enters the environment, it doesn't biodegrade, it, it breaks down into tinier and tinier pieces, and they spread throughout the environment. And so microplastics are a huge problem now, because you, you can't really clean up the ocean pollution problem anyway, but you really can't clean up microplastics. And so it's scary, and it is pervasive. And I've definitely visited beaches around the world where the plastic just rolls in, like just constantly. Mm-hmm. So cleanups, it's like you clean up and then a few hours later, it's the beach is full again. So sort of that level of pollution. And then I've been to beaches, say on Canada's west or east coast, where it looks like there isn't significant pollution. But then I know based on studies that in fact, microplastic pollution is a big problem. And yeah, you know, so it, it is unfortunately 
really everywhere now. It's been detected in the deepest part of the ocean. It's been detected in the Antarctic, in the Arctic, kind of all corners of our oceans really at this point. And so it's a growing problem. And I think, unfortunately, we will increasingly see plastic on beaches that we used to consider clean or pristine because the ocean, there's just nowhere for it to go. You know, it has to essentially burp it out. And um, I think we're going to see that more and more as time goes on. Well, when I read studies showing that microplastics were in placentas and that even when we eat fish, we may not bite into a piece of fish and find a piece of plastic that we can detect, but these microplastic particles are indeed found in fish flesh. And so we're all taking this in and this plastic waste is becoming a part of us. Yeah, and it's in the air we breathe. So many of the things in our household, like carpets and furniture and clothing and blankets and stuffed animals, there's so much stuff that's made of plastic that we don't necessarily think about. And a lot of that is shedding microfibers and microplastics. It's in the water we drink. And just like the placenta, there's been studies that show that it's been found in blood as well. Our exposure is unfortunately constant. And I think in the coming months and years, we'll be seeing more and more studies connecting the dots, you know, unfortunately, on exposure versus impact. We know that there are harmful additives and chemicals used in plastic production. And we know that some of those harmful chemicals and additives are correlated with disease. And unfortunately, as I say, I think we're going to see more of that. And so That's why it's extremely important for us to look at ways that we can be eliminating plastic from our daily lives. And ultimately, globally, we need to move away from our reliance on all non-essential plastic um, and look for those healthier alternatives. Well, Sarah, our time is just about up, and I want to just leave you a few seconds to share anything with our listeners that I might not have covered or that you want our listeners to know? I will say that with this new global treaty, global plastic treaty, that is about to be, that negotiations are about to start at the end of November, it could be a game changer when we talk about global plastic pollution and our plastic waste crisis. For those that are feeling frustrated by a lack of action by their government, The fact that we will have a UN process to negotiate the terms of a global treaty and the fact that there are certain governments that want strong action and that there is a massive, massive movement of people around the world that support strong action on plastic and climate change and protecting biodiversity. There is so much positive momentum towards creating something that could really create a brighter future for our oceans, for our communities. And so I really encourage people to learn more about that process, learn how they can share their voice that they support a strong treaty, and just wherever possible, support the kind of changes that we want to see towards reuse, refill, and those better solutions. All right. And we will provide a link to greenpeace.org backslash Canada, where people can learn more about what the Canadian government is doing. I'll provide the UN link 
But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Sarah King. She is the head of Greenpeace Canada's Oceans and Plastic Campaign. Thank you so much for your time today, Sarah. Thank you so much.